Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to Episode 9. Today we're going to have a chat with Chris Ring. Based out of Buffalo, Chris has been promoting shows and concerts for over 20 years. I was initially planning to have him on Small Business Volume 2, but I quickly realized I should just give him his own episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. As always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find all of the streaming information, as well as all social media links. Questions and comments are encouraged. To send feedback, simply use the form at the bottom of the website. Coming up is my interview with Chris Ring. But first, I'm going to tell you how easy it is to create a podcast with Anchor. Before we jump into to your show booking career and whatnot, uh, let's talk about your upbringing a little bit and, and how you ended up finding like punk and hardcore and all that stuff, too. Yeah, I, I found it, you know, early in high school, uh, you know, around freshman year. My uh, my cousin, Don, he's a year older than me. And uh, so, you know, he was in high school as a freshman and probably got into things like Gorilla Biscuits and Instead and you know, uh, minor threat and things like that. Um, I started skateboarding and, you know, the one that basically introduced me to, you know, a lot of the hardcore punk rock stuff. Um, early on, you know, the first records I remember, you know, getting were like Green Day, Kerplunk, or, um, well, actually, that was probably the first one, you know, and, and Jim and Green Day and kind of going through their discography, the stuff they put out already um, is what kind of piqued my interest with punk rock. Uh, then I got introduced to Descendants, and uh got the summary record that was basically you know a collection of different songs throughout the years and you know in the beginning i was definitely more more into the punk stuff than really the hardcore stuff but um the the hardcore scene was really you know i think in the you know late to mid 90s was was blossoming here in buffalo um and a lot of my cousin's friends bands uh or friends were in bands you know from west seneca or hamburg and some of the surrounding suburbs and that whole concept was new to me, you know, friends that were in bands and you, they play shows and you go and you jump off stages and sing along and get hot and sweaty. Um, so that whole concept was pretty, was pretty new to me. and was pretty wild. Um, so, you know, early years in high school, you know, Don would just, you know, invite me to these shows and we'd go check it out. And next thing you know, I was hooked and, uh, you know, I don't know if it was just the energy and the chaos, you know, that I was seeing at these shows, um, you know, in high school, I actually went to a, a private school here in Buffalo called St. Joe's. I was a little bit of a problem child in middle school growing up. So, you know, I think for my own good, my parents figured I need a little more structure going to like a more of a private school. My sister actually went to a, the public school here um, where she wasn't uh, didn't have the lack of attention span or, that I must have had uh, growing up. So, you know, going to school like that, you know, then to like, you know, leave the regimented, you know, shirt and tie and structure to be able to go to like a punk hardcore show was completely different you know so it was kind of like my release for those sort of things and um you know just through the hardcore scene kids were super welcoming and you meet a lot of people and introduce you to new bands and there's people there with distros and selling records and kids asking to buy demos and zines and it was just like this whole new world to me i was like wow this is cool and just started buying things and checking things out um and you know the community is so small you know once you see one kid wearing a straight edge t-shirt or grill biscuits t-shirt, you know, any other hardcore kids like, you know, Hey, what's up? Or who are you? And in my high school at that time, uh, one of the guys from hourglass went to school with me. He was a year older than me. And one of the guys that were in daybreak were also a year older than me. And, um, 
you know, they start seeing me at shows and seeing me at school on dress down days wearing, you know, hardcore t-shirts and things like that. And uh, they kind of took me under their wing in high school uh, and started bringing me to more shows and we started hanging out together. And that was really like my introduction to at least, you know, the, the Buffalo hardcore scene and, and, you know, a lot of the bands regionally and, and nationally. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like you and I kind of had a similar entryway to uh, punk rock and hardcore too. And I got into it more through, through punk and stuff first. And then it was definitely the energy and, and the, the community aspect of hardcore that drew me in. And it was, it was, it was a lot different in the nineties. It seems like, you know, and now it's, I mean, I think it's a lot different with social media and just a lot of stuff like that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. The stuff back then, it was just, you know, it was, it's, it was actually the opposite of what, you know, you've heard from your parents or, you know, you you watch on MTV. I mean, Guns N' Roses, I guess we will say was my first favorite band. And, uh, you know, you see the videos of them, Metallica and, and the mosh pits and the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And, you know, that's like, you know, what my parents think is going on when we go to these shows. Right. And it's like, no, you can't go to a show. You can't go to a concert. There's this crazy shit's going to happen. And yet you go and, you know, while kids are dancing and, and, and singing along and screaming, they're still helping you up when you fall down and, you know, giving your hat back after it falls off. Like, the, you know, again, I, the shows I was going to, there wasn't a lot of the, the old school, late 80s, early 90s, you know skinhead stuff um you know these shows you know a lot of the crews weren't at those shows um at least not yet so you know there was really this like communal factor that was happening all the time i mean buffalo was having two three shows a week on the regular and um it, it was like you know if i didn't go to the show i'd go to the mall and if i didn't go to the mall i'd go to a show there's that was like just the thing to do and um you know, it was also, you know, rebelling against your parents, I guess, a little bit, you know, where they don't want you going to these sort of things. And they think it's, they think the worst, yet they don't understand what that whole, you know, the core scene is all about. And, um, you know, that, that, that was appealing to me, knowing that, you know, I still had was a little rough around the edges. I wanted to, you know, break the rules a little bit and, and go do some fun stuff. And uh, that's kind of where shows came into play. So you're talking about your cousin, Donnie, is actually a good segue to my next question, too. Sure. I, I, I don't remember exactly when you guys started shows, but I'm pretty sure my first memory is I was at a trial show in Buffalo. And I remember you guys were passing out flyers, I think, for a turmoil show. And that would have been like 98. Uh, is my timeline pretty correct? Or had you guys already kind of started doing stuff before that, too? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, so I probably started going to shows in like 90, 93, 94. So my freshman, sophomore year of high school. And, um, you know, even through high school, I never never had any ambition to like be a show promoter. I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, the logistics of the things that were going into it. It was just, it was just a cool thing to do. So, um, as I was graduating high school, um, the school I went to actually graduated earlier, uh, than a lot of the public schools and the school that my cousin went to was in, was in West Seneca. Um, for whatever reason, the West Seneca high school, at least West Seneca East, all like the punk hardcore straight edge kids were like homecoming King. They were like the cool kids. And, uh, you know, the public schools around my, me where I grew up, you know, 20 minutes away or even my private school, you know, we were the, you know, you know, the, the, the ones that were getting picked on all the time. And uh, it was just this wild scene to be able to go to like this high school and like you see like, you know, the popular kids are actually the ones wearing like Gorilla Biscuits t-shirts. You know, it was just it didn't make any sense, you know, given the, the, the culture that ever, you know, most teenagers grow up in. So um, I really started hanging out uh, in that suburb a lot, whether it was going to house parties or just you know, the local uh, ice cream shop or whatever it was and started hanging out with a lot of those kids. Um, and they were all in bands. And that was like, you know, Threshold, which was Keith from Every Time I Die's first band or Pride, which was Jordan from Every Time I Die's first band. And the Kid Gorgeous kids, like all those kids grew up in West Seneca. And, um, you know, we all became really good friends and 
we're going to shows together and you know senior year of high school i'm sitting here thinking like you know well i could be in a band and uh you know my cousin and i decided like one day we'll you know we're gonna start a fun little kind of cheesy punk band uh to get out and just play some shows and and give that end of the you know the entertainment a, a shot uh but we were horrible you know i decided i'll play the drums and he was gonna sing and play guitar and neither of us had any experience doing doing either so nobody would give us any you know shows i mean we're horrible i mean i, I can't even explain how bad i didn't even use the kick pedal we had songs that were just called stop go where you make noise and you, you stop you go you just shit to make kids dance and smash into each other and you stop like it was it was just nonsense but it was something that we you know we enjoyed doing so uh you know after senior year of high school we were really adamant about playing out and uh you know like i said nobody would really give us a show and um like i said before you know if we weren't at shows back in that time you know him and i you know we and my friends we would just go hang at the mall you know so we were little mall rats slash hardcore kids you know so going to the mall consistently you know hanging out with people from west seneca that had cousins in chitawaga and other various suburbs we ended up knowing you know a lot of kids you know going to the going to the mall friday and saturday nights and when we decided to throw our first show we you know we ran out of roller rink and basically told the guys we we're throwing a birthday party and we we're gonna have a couple bands play and uh you know they charged us x amount of dollars for open skate and really didn't care you know that we had music playing and um I don't think they really understood to the, the level degree the bands that we were going to have. You know, I think they kind of equated it to like a DJ and we're going to play some top 40 music and it's going to be great. Little did, little did they know we had, you know, six hardcore punk bands coming in that were just going to like, you know, kind of tear shit up a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, we booked the show and, you know, like you said, you saw us flying at that trial show. I mean, that was our thing growing up was like, we were the street team kids. I mean, we were always out and about and, we both kind of had that personality of, you know, meeting new people all the time. So, you know, we didn't have issues kind of going up to people and, Hey, come check out our band or come do this. So, you know, we flyers for that first show and I'm going to say almost 300 kids came and for a, a local show of local punk bands, uh, 300 kids. And this was in the suburbs. It was crazy. You know, it was just, it was a massive turnout. Um, obviously we had a ton of fun. Our band got to play, uh, we charged six bucks to get in, you know, it's $1,800 there. The roller ring cost us a couple hundred bucks. All the bands walked with a couple hundred bucks and we saw, you know, a bunch of money left over. And I was like, wow, this was, this was a cool concept, you know, and we had an unbelievable time doing it. And a lot of our friends that played that show, you know, wanted to, you know, play again and play again. So uh, we just started doing like local band shows, you know, my freshman year of college, it was just friends bands, you know, local bands here regionally or whatnot that we just reach out to and kind of do these showcases once a month. Um, and it was great. It, it was just, it was fun. And again, at that time period, you know, a lot of those, the, the punk scene didn't have the amount of shows that the hardcore kids did. Um, and some of these punk bands, you know, I'm using the word punk lightly. It was definitely a little more pop punky than, you know, the street punk stuff. But, um, you know, we intermixed a lot of the genres, whether it's hardcore bands, metal bands, punk bands. And that was kind of something that we saw as we grew, you know, I guess we'll call it, you know, as, as we became like real promoters, you know, the importance of the diversi diversification on the lineup, you know, like let's get the metal heads here and let's get the punk kids here and let's get the emo kids here. And, you know, maybe one of those kids are like the other kids band and vice versa. And like, that was like kind of like our, our kind of core concept when booking our shows. Um, and it worked really, really well. And back in the day when we're, you know, you're buying seven inches and demos, you know, the bands listed all their contact information in it, you know, so it was super easy to reach out to somebody and just say, Hey, do you want to play a show? And, you know, there were no real agents at that time and no big managers. It was literally you're calling, you know, the, the bands direct and, and working it out. So 
it, it was pretty relatively easy, to be honest. Um, and we just looked at it as like a fun side thing to do. You know, we both had other jobs and was there something fun to do? And, you know, we did it for about a year and um, actually not even maybe, maybe it was like six months. Uh, and at that time, Buried Alive, um, you know, formed and they were, you know, anxious to, to, you know, to play out. And obviously Don and I were doing a bunch of shows at that time. Um, and, you know, Volga was like, listen, you know, we'll help put together the lineup, you know, of these kind of like dream bands that they wanted to have play there for a show. And that was, you know, Turmoil and Elliot and New Day Rising, you know, all, all bands that, you know, Vogel and the guys have been friends with over the years. And, um, you know, him and, and Scott Sprague, who was also in Buried Alive, you know, did a ton of shows uh, before us as BXO Productions at the Showplace. And, you know, my cousin and I grew up going to all his shows. So they both were super instrumental in like, kind of helping us put together, quote, our first real show. Um, and we put it on and we did it at the Murray Theater. And, you know, you want to talk about kids traveling for a show. I mean, you know, Buffalo was always situated where you had tons of kids from, you know, Cleveland and Toronto and Syracuse coming to shows. But, you know, that show was special. I mean, there were people coming in all over the place, you know, to see Barry Lies first show and Turmoil and Elliot. And um, it was just awesome. And, you know, afterwards, you know, I don't want to say we got the taste, but like it was a lot of fun. Um, whether it was the recognition, you know, just the cool factor of like being involved and like putting something like that together. Uh, it really just kind of like, you know, it hit me somewhere that I didn't probably didn't even know existed in myself. Where I was like, wow, this is really cool. And like, we're really good at this. And, um, the band seemed to have a good time. And then after the show, you know, everybody goes and hangs out and it was just, it was a really cool thing. And, um, you know, I guess they can say the rest is history, but that's kind of the truth is, you know, once we kind of got started um, and the shows were always doing well. So, you know, the bands would tell other bands, it's like, Oh, who does your shows in Buffalo? Oh, there's this guy, Chris rings guy, Don, you know, DC connections, they do shows and people started calling us. We started emailing them off the back of seven inches and, focusing more on the regional stuff bands that would drive you know four or five six hours and um put together these bills of just you know diverse lineups and it wasn't something that we invented you know like i said scott spray used to do a lot of shows before us and a lot of the shows you know we grew up going to you would see bloodlet and lifetime play together i mean things that you that nowadays kids would just be like what the hell are you doing you know why are you putting a metal band with uh, with an emo band and but there's just something about that where it broke up the monotony of the show you know, you got to see cool new bands and new genres. And, you know, we basically kind of took that model uh, and did that with our shows moving forward. And I definitely think that helped, you know, get more kids out, whether, you know, they want to see a certain band or not or a certain genre. And um, that might have been one of the things that kind of snowballed into just it becoming what now is my career, um, which back then was, you know, never even an option. You know, I was going to school for environmental science. And next thing you know, I'm booking shows for the rest of my life. It's just, you know, it was, it was a hard left turn that did, I did not see coming anywhere. But uh, um, it's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's cool. The word of mouth aspect was definitely important to me. I mean, you remember when I was booking the shows. I mean, you actually kind of helped with the word of mouth when you, you kind of passed on Thursday to me that time because you guys had already booked them like so many times in one year in Buffalo. So you guys were like, oh, let's give Josh a shot with this or whatever, you know. Yeah um and that show actually was like that was one of my more diverse lineups too but even back before that you know diversity was always really important like like uh rob rob antonucci keeps sending me old flyers to post on instagram and i'm looking at them i'm like man like you're saying like we would never get away with booking these bills now because kids just want like one style of music on each show 
Um, yeah, even but, even the bands and agents, you know, they're oh, you know, you got to send us the support for approval, and like, you know, you can't put a ska band on this kind of punk show, and it's like, yeah, you can, you know, and you know, those are some of the frustrations, you know, I deal with, you know, I guess today, but um, you know, back then it was it was super cool, you know, you, you could literally call Jimmy Hapreed or or the guys in Turmoil and just be like, hey, you want to come down for the weekend, and you know, who else is on the bill? Oh, great or so and so, and they're like, yeah, that's fucking cool, you know, like it doesn't have to just be you know, the chugga chugga mosh or just the, an 88 style, you know, old school hardcore show, you can, you can have other bands of different genres play. And I think, you know, some of the band guys appreciated that because not everybody was just into that genre they played and um, it was unique. And, you know, not trying to say one thing about, you know, us versus the other local promoters that were doing shows back in that time. But, you know, a lot of the bills that we were booking were definitely, definitely had a lot a lot of different genres, you know, where some of the other promoters were doing, you know, if they were in old school hardcore, their, their shows were all, old school hardcore bands and you know um some of those shows weren't doing great and people are losing a lot of money doing that stuff and that's the other thing people don't realize like there's real money involved with this stuff and you know back in the late 90s early 2000s you're making seven eight maybe ten dollars an hour at your day job like you know nobody's banking tons of money here that's that's giving you the the money to front to book all these shows so you do a couple shows in a couple months and you're losing 500 bucks a thousand bucks i mean that's a lot of money um so you know i definitely think that's one of the things that set us apart and kind of enabled our shows to kind of do pretty well and and set us up uh, to move forward and you know whether it's me starting after dark and and, and continuing on or, or what but um yeah that's what i'm thinking uh was the band that you were in at the time was that the budgets or, or were you in other bands too no it was the budget so it was the only band i've, I've been in yeah i mean it was a budget attempt of starting a band and it was we've had <laughs> literally a million members you know in and out um you know, like I said, you know, early on, it was literally just straight punk rock. Just nobody knew what the fuck we were doing. Uh, you know, that evolved in, in, in the 2000. Um, my cousin actually moved to Florida. So it was kind of like, you know, how do I keep the, the dream alive? And, uh, you know, I, I did convince uh, Jordan from, from Every Time I Die and Keith or Jordan and uh, Steve from Kid Gorgeous and who's now in Every Time I Die as well to like, hey, let's kind of form like we'll call it a super group and, uh, you know, put together like, you know, the ultimate pop punk band and I moved away from the drums and basically became the, the glorified boss tone singing and dancing on stage. Uh, and <laughs> it, it was just like, you know, let's let's try to do this and, and you know, put out like a really good pop punk record, which I do think we did. And we, and we got we played a lot of shows and our, our friends in Buffalo actually put the record out. Uh, they were in the band Tomorrow's at Stake and they, they formed a small label called um, Long Shot Records and paid for the record and the recording. And we went to Watchmen and, and knocked it out in a couple of days. And I remember you know, Jordan's literally in the middle of like exams and I'm literally going to the school, pick him up after an exam, driving to Watchmen. He records one, two songs. I drive him back for his 2 PM exam. And he does that for an hour and he comes back out and we get in the car and drive back to Lockport and he finishes another song. It was just the stupid shit, you know, that again, like, you know, when bands don't do that stuff anymore, but, uh, or maybe they do. I'm just not privy to it, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And we did that. And you know, that, that one kind of ended, you know, anytime you just put something together for the sake of, you know, let's blow up and be the biggest thing in the world, obviously was destined to implode. And that lineup did implode. And, um, but you know, the, the, the concept of the budget still didn't. And my cousin moved back home and we put together another lineup. That was definitely a little more strike anywhere. Amberetta, like a little more street punk stuff that was really stuff we were, you know, we grew up listening to and, um, you know, relative success. We played a bunch of warp tours. We toured with catch 22 and the Kindles and, and some stuff like that. Idle hands and trust kill records. And, um, by no means was it because we were a great band. It was definitely the whole who you know and hey, I'll book the tour if you uh, 
let my band open. And, uh, you know, a lot of those bands were open to those ideas. So um, it worked out for us. And if anything, it was just a lot of fun and gave us something to do. So, um, yeah, so yeah, those the budgets. Yeah, I guess switching into After Dark, it sounds like you had a pretty easy path to kind of establish yourself as a promoter with the word of mouth and just kind of knowing more bands and stuff. So uh, w- when you switched to After Dark, was that because you, you said your cousin had moved away and you just decided to start doing it on your own at that point? No, so... Um, DC connections, you know, we were, you know, we'll call us, you know, we we're the local hardcore punk promoters and, uh, Buffalo at that time had, you know, two other, I'd say indie promoters. Um, this guy, Artie Marcel, they're still around. Artie owns a town ballroom in Buffalo. Marcel works for live nation and, um, this company called ESI that were predominantly, you know, the bookers for the showplace theater. And, um, you know, when we rented out the showplace for a lot of our shows, you'd have to call ESI cause they held the calendar, uh, to book those events. And, you know, we were booking, like we booked Neurosis there and, and, and a lot of cool shows, uh, Fireside, Kid Dynamite and Hatebreed and things like that. Um, and, you know, we just developed a relationship and, um, you know, the the big real claim to fame, you know, I guess I'll call it is, um, you know, like I said, we're, you know, we're emailing bands on the back of seven inches and really booking things on a DIY level. And uh, we drove to Cleveland for a show to see Scarhead open up for <laughs> Vanilla Ice when Vanilla Ice went metal. And, uh, you know, we go to the show and, you know, we thought it was more for shits and giggles. Like, holy shit, you know, Scarhead's open up for Vanilla Ice. This is wild. And we go there and we're just talking to Scarhead's merch guy. And uh, he's like, listen, you know, there's, there's another leg of this tour that's being booked right now. You should call, you could just call, call Vanilla Ice's booking agent and, and book it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the merch guy that night, uh, his name is Tim Bohr, is actually a pretty massive booking agent this day. He was, he was Thursday's agent. You know, that's who you book Thursday with actually back in the day. And, he books Kill Switch Engage and um, owns his own agency now. And Tim's, you know, been been in the business for a really long time. But also New York City, Philadelphia, kind of old hardcore kid. Um, but he gave us the agent's name and number. And my cousin and I came home and we're like, "Fuck, we're gonna book Vanilla Ice!" Like, and again, in our mind, <laughs> Vanilla Ice. The last time we played Buffalo was the arena, so it's just like such an insane concept. And um, but we were only booking like roller rink shows, you know. So we changed my parents' answer machine to be the business DC Connections and. I told my parents that the phone rings, they have to answer it as a business. Hey, you called, you know, DC Connections and really kind of put on this front that we were like legit promoters and had a real business. And, um, you know, we called the agent and he was like, yeah, make me an offer. And, you know, again, terms that are my everyday vocabulary now when booking shows were so new to us that we didn't even understand like what that meant. So I still have it to this day. We wrote an essay as to why he should let us book Vanilla Ice. And we went to Kinko's and faxed it to him. And uh, he called us back, was kind of chuckling, like, all right, cool story, but how much are you going to pay us? <laughs> and we're like, oh, well, we'll give you all the money. You know, like, we didn't care. It was just like, holy shit, let's just book Vanilla Ice. And really, at that time, we had no idea what went into a show with that level of production, um, you know, that much security, just the overall expenses for, for something like that, where it's just, we weren't at that level yet. We were still doing like a lot of the DIY, like roller rink stuff. And uh, besides, you know, the heat or the turmoil Barry live show and some small shows at the Mercury theater, we hadn't really done any shows at the showplace theater yet. Um, so, you know, we, we were unknowing and we basically just agreed to literally give an advice, like all the money. Um, so, you know, a couple of weeks out from the show, we've had no tickets, like zero tickets. And we made homemade tickets, you know, and went to Kinko's and printed them up and, put them at home with the hits new world record and discovery and all the mom and pop record shops. And we had literally no tickets sold. And, uh, my cousin, and I flipped a coin to cancel the show. We're like, fuck this. We can't do this. And 
my cousin lost. He called the agent. He's like, Hey, we got to cancel the show. Hangs up. We're like, all right, we're out of it. You know, and the agent calls back and he's like, you can't just cancel the show. Like, what's the problem? And he's like, all right, don't worry about the million dollar insurance policy. And don't worry about picking us up at the airport in the Rolls Royce. Like all this bullshit stuff. He ends up cutting out like 300 bucks worth of expenses. Nothing, nothing even crazy. We hang up. We agree to continue doing the show. We just look at each other like, fuck it. We're just not going to go. Like, fuck <laughs> this guy. You know what I mean? Like, I'm working at a, a local, uh, I don't even know what you would call it, but like a, a catalog uh, store called Brand Names where you literally walk in and order something out of a catalog. I'm a stock boy in the back, you know, making six bucks an hour. My cousin is a cook at Denny's. Like, you know, we've no, we got no money. We have no skin in the game. So fuck it. And, um, you know, lucky for us, uh, the stars aligned. And literally the week before the show, the daily newspaper put an article about how Vanilla Ice was bringing this hardcore sound to Buffalo and the, t- the popular top 40 station kiss 90.5, like the, the morning show people saw that and thought it was hilarious. And they started this countdown to Vanilla Ice. And I swear to God, if it wasn't for them talking about that show for free, you know, giving us that kind of publicity, we would have been fucked. And literally after that weekend, they, they, they talked about that Friday, the show was a Thursday. The Monday morning, you know, the record stores are calling us. Hey, they're out of tickets. They're out of tickets. And we're like, what? Like, holy shit. And um, we ended up selling the show out. And, uh, you know, it was crazy. You know, we meet the tour manager and all this sort of stuff. And, like, you know, who are the promoters? And my cousin's got the Krishna beads and the bleach blonde hair. And I got my size 45 Jankos on. Like, I mean, and I'm, you know, baby-faced, 18 years old, in my mom's 86 caravan, just like jokers, you know? And the guy's like, wait, you guys are the promoters? And we're like... Yeah, you know, it was just, it was surreal. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was super cool. And it was funny, though, because that, that show was so crazy. And we didn't have enough money to pay for everything because we we're giving him all the money that literally you would walk in with your ticket, give it to my cousin. I'd walk right back out and resell it. And we had to just generate more revenue to get money and to like pay for the security and the, and the crazy sound system we brought in. So, you know, on a sold out vanilla ice show, I think we made fucking 40 bucks enough to buy a muddy taco at the end of the night. And, but there's things that we learned that day. I mean, even when I paid him, you know, we paid him in a shoe box of money and the, his, his tour manager sat us down. He's like, listen, when you guys pay a band, all the, all the money's numerically in order and all the bills face the same way, like literally things that I still do to this. And it was just, it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, uh, as cheesy as it sounds, uh, we actually, you know, became somewhat buddies with vanilla ice that night. And, he thought it was crazy that, you know, a couple 18 year old kids, you know, did, pulled it off. So he invited us to go on tour with them. And uh, we went with them for like three, four nights, uh, you know, Rochester and Detroit and just partied up with his crew and literally lived in the time of our lives, you know, and we couldn't believe that we pulled it off. And that snowballed into Scarhead's agent. Like I said, you know, book neurosis. So he started calling us for his bands and Vanilla's agent now started calling us for his bands and, what went from us booking just bands that we liked, you know, bands that we wanted to see and invite to come play Buffalo now started coming into like, you know, I, I was never a big fan of neurosis by any means. And, um, but it's like, all right, I know a lot of my friends work. So it's like, all right, I guess we'll book neurosis now. Um, and that one though, it really bit us in the ass. I mean, we lost thousands of dollars, you know, had to borrow money from our grandmother and like, you know, it was a real rude awakening that like, you know, that, that wasn't a bill that we put together on our own. You know, that was like one of those prepackaged tours that the agents just sell you. And, you know, it was our first real glimpse in like the music business and was kind of how shrewd that, you know, the whole thing works, you know. Um, and I don't know, if, you know, it was something to turn my cousin off. But at the same time, it was like, you know, he works his nine to five at Denny's and he leaves. You know, he doesn't have to think about it. And um, 
you know, the concert business and when you're doing shows is something that you're doing 24 seven. So, you know, we definitely get our hands wet doing a bunch of those shows and that local company ESI that ran the show place, uh, their main booker, uh, was leaving. He, you know, he, he moved on to a different industry. So they offered, you know, me a job to go work there and, and book shows and, you know, 18, 19 years old, you know, offered a job to actually just book concerts for a living. I mean, the money was dick. I was making seven or eight bucks an hour, but I was booking fucking shows for a living. You know, it was cool. So I took that job, worked at ESI for a couple of years. Um, Don came on for a little bit. He ended up leaving. Um, Scott Sprague came out of retirement. He worked there for a little bit, booking some shows. And, um, you know, I, I did that for maybe, I'm going to say 99 to 2001. And like I said, it was great. It, it definitely got my name out there. You know, I was booking a lot of really, really cool bands. And, you know, that was a time when things like the Get Up Kids were blowing up and, you know, at the drive-in. And a lot of those, you know, the, the, the emo-esque post-hardcore stuff was was pretty popular. And um, Sick of It Alls of the World, you know, the hardcore punk bands, like, there's a serious scene here. And, um, you know, we were used to doing those shows on the DIY level. Now was, things were a little bit more structured. Um, but nobody was really tapping into, like, the emo stuff, you know, the hot water music, the alkaline trios of the world, like the midtowns, like that kind of pop punk upswing. And, you know, it was just, you know, like I said, I, I started doing, when I started getting the punk rock and hardcore, I definitely liked the punk stuff a little bit more. Um, so things that sound a little bit more like the descendants or green day were things I probably, you know, was a little more attracted to like the saves the days of the world and stuff like that. So, you know, we started booking a lot of those bands and kind of made our mark as like the, the emo, we pop punk promoters and, um, you know, built my kind of career off of that. And one point, you know, me and the owner of ESI kind of had a weird falling out over some like cover band bullshit that they wanted me to book. And I always said, I'm not, you know, I'm never going to book cover bands and listen to this day, like no harm against it. If that's what you're into, that's what you're into. But, you know, I was always like a local original, whether it's local bands or, you know, original touring bands, but that's, that was my passion. And, um, you know, when that started getting pushed on me and, I was like, man, I don't know about this anymore. You know, I might just go back out on my own like we do with DC Connections. And that's kind of how I started After Dark and left ESI in 2001 and haven't looked back since. Yeah, and it's funny that you had mentioned the homemade tickets for the Vanilla Ice show because I don't know if you remember, you and I booked a, a Thursday show together in I think like late 2002. Um, and I had actually had them cancel on a show like six months before, but I had sold tickets for it. And I told anybody who didn't want us who didn't want to come into the show because Thursday had canceled, they could they could hold their ticket for the next time they played here. And at one point you come up to me and you're like, dude, what the fuck is this? I think I like, do what's up with that. this ticket yeah. that you made? Yeah. yeah. And it was just like this crappy, like pink or, or like tan or peach ticket that I had made like off the computer, you know? Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, when you and I had kind of met each other, you were already like booking some, some bigger stuff in Rochester. Now, had you already established connections here from working for ESI or was that something you kind of just started doing once you started after dark? Yeah. So when, when I was at ESI, um, it just kind of, there was, Nobody was really booking a ton of like those shows in Rochester. Um, and it was more agents asking me, like, hey, you know, have you ever thought about going into Rochester? And you know, it was even Syracuse down the road, but um, you know, Rochester was obviously a little bit closer. Uh, the Water Street was a venue that's been around forever that, you know, again, I went to a million shows at. So um, yeah, I mean, me calling, you know, the Water Street and basically, you know, hey, can we do some shows in here? And and they were relatively cool about it in the beginning. I mean, there's definitely some hurdles we had to jump over because again, I'm 19, you know, so even though I did work for like a company that was, you know, established in Buffalo and has been around for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, it's tough being a 19 year old kid. And, you know, the owner of the water street at that time, Peter's a lot older than me and he's been around the block, you know, a couple of times. So it's like, you know, how serious were they going to take me calling them and booking some shows? But 
luckily they kind of gave us the uh, the okay and we started kind of developing that that market and you know a band would you know guar hatebreed will play buffalo this year and we put them in rochester the next year you know it was just like this constant ever revolving like you know circle of just like buffalo rochester buffalo rochester buffalo rochester and um yeah that's how that started and then just you know as i left esi and started after dark you know that just that just continued and you know the, the tough thing was is a lot of those relationships were the ones i cultivated you know where you know, I was the one on the phones. I was the one going to the shows. I was the one taking the meetings with the venue owners. So, you know, when I left, it was an easy transition for myself. Um, it wasn't obviously as easy, you know, for the guy that owned ESI when, you know, he hasn't really been booking or talking to anybody for four or five years. So um, it was easy for the agents and the, and the venue owners to be like, well, this guy's been, you know, the face of your business for how many years now? Like, Chris is the guy, you know? Um, we're going to keep working with him. And honestly, like, it sucked because I definitely saw myself staying at that company ESI for a long time. Um, it was just an unfortunate kind of weird fallout that we had. And, you know, we were trying to keep everything amicable. Um, and honestly, you know, I'll, I still remember to this day, like when, you know, actually I told him, I, I think I'm going to, you know, put my two weeks in and go back out on my own. You know, he told me quote, you know, every morning I wake up, my sole goal is to put you out of business. And that was just like, you know, one at 20 years old or whatever, it was scary to hear, you know, guys put in the business for so long, like, kind of threaten you like that but then there's like the punk rockness of me it says like oh well, fuck you old man you know like let's go you know so <laughs> and that kind of was my driving force and um you know it's funny is literally the, the the i mean this is actually a ridiculous uh story but uh i literally watched jerry Maguire and quit the next day like it was like it was huh. like the kind of straw that broke the camel's back that got me like that motivation like fuck it i'm gonna even start my own thing you know and uh it's weird that people find inspiration and random ass shit. But to me, I kind of like, what are the chain? You know, it took it as a sign and um, kind of motivated me to kind of suck it up and actually put it out there. And yeah, so here we are. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, were there any other really big struggles that you had and, and did it ever make you consider like, like quitting doing, doing shows or were you always kind of in, in it for the long haul at that point? Um. I mean, neurosis was definitely the, you know, the biggest loss we had is, is the, the duo, you know, of Don and I doing shows, um, you know, and there were, dude, there were a lot of times where, you know, we're doing shows in the most random ass spots. I mean, there's a place in Lackawanna called the metal pit that we, you know, used to do shows at. And, you know, I found a flyer for that a couple you know months back and, you know, back then you used to post the directions on the flyers, you know, because there really wasn't, you know, GPS in your phones and trip tickets were paying the ass and, you know, I'm looking at the fucking directions that we've made for this place. I'm like, holy shit. Like, why would anybody even try to find this venue, you know? Um, and, yeah, those shows, you know, well, we were doing a ton of them. We weren't making any money. You know, we we're losing 100 bucks here, 200 bucks there. And But luckily, you know, whatever show we had two weeks before kind of made a couple hundred bucks and that floated the next couple shows. And, you know, it was it was self-sustaining, but it was never like, holy shit, this is like, you know, I can make a living off doing this. It was It was still shits and giggles and gave us something doing and obviously you know got us more involved than we've ever been um but even actually even before the show stuff you know right before the show stuff we um you know we used to travel a lot to you know regionally you know whether it was like erie for shows and toronto for shows and syracuse and rochester and albany but um you know the the whole distro thing you know, was something that like, you know, interested us in the fact like, you know, we we're buying seven inches and and records and you know, we came up with the idea to like go through bands thank you lists. Um, you know, this is the late nineties where a lot of the hardcore kids and straight edge kids 
left for the rave scene. And uh, we would literally like go through bands, thank you lists, look them up in the phone book, call them and ask them if they wanted to sell their record collection. And uh, we bought a ton of dudes record collections and we created budget distro and literally would fucking go to shows and, you know, set up these distros. And um, I can't remember what show was at Mercury. I want to say it was that turmoil show, but I remember, um, fuck what, the, what band was it in one of the guys I don't know, was from chain of strength or somebody was there in town touring and uh, oh no it was a chain of strength you know like first pressing white that we were selling for like five bucks you know and this guy's looking at the fucking record and he's like telling his girl like go to the car and get the wallet go to the car and get the wallet right now <laughs> and we're sitting here because like there was no like you know price book for records back then and ebay was still relatively brand new like there was no there's no real like value, you know, you can't really tell the value on some of these things. And again, we weren't doing that to really to make fucking a living off of it. it was like, let's not let these records go to waste in some kid's basement who's now raving it up. It's like, you know, let's recirculate this stuff. And again, if there's enough money left over to pay for us to get into the show or for Mighty Taco afterwards, um, you know, it was cool. And it gave us reasons to go to like Detroit Fest or Crazy Fest in Louisville because you know, there's no table fees. You literally just show up at your distro and fucking pick a spot at a table and to start selling shit, you know, and um, just that kind of freedom was was super cool and gave us something to do and a reason to talk to other people and other kids in other cities and stuff and trade records and meet their bands and stuff. And then that slowly kind of progressed into us doing the shows. So I think that was an important part. Um, now that I think about it and how we get started as promoters, because we can already cut our teeth with the distro stuff and continued that doing um, doing the distro stuff, too, when we started doing their shows. So um but yeah, from an overall law standpoint, I mean, that's the one that stands out, you know, from back in the day. Um, you know, there's definitely times where, you know, you have bands cancel and some crazy shit happen, but nothing that was like a huge financial loss. Um, you know, but the big losses came a lot later in my career. And when I got a lot more balls or stupid or whatever it was trying to book all the bigger <laughs> stuff. But um, yeah, it was just, you know, some of the stuff actually just became a little more thankless. Um you know, I'm not going to name the band, but, you know, there's bands that you, you love in and have every CD and you sing along to every song and you're super stoked to book them. And then they get there and they're like, where are my white socks on the rider? And you're like, wait, what? Like, you really want me to buy you fucking white socks? Like, dude, we've got like 100 tickets sold. You know, like, I'm losing money here tonight. Yeah, well, I want my fucking white socks. And you're like, man, I used to love your band. And now I hate your band. Um, so there's weird <laughs> little things that would happen like that. More so than us really losing like a ton of money. Um because, dude, the buff, the, like I said, the Buffalo scene was really, really strong. And, uh, you know, kids would literally go to the show place on Fridays and Saturdays because there's a show there straight up. Like, whether they knew the band, liked the band, ever heard of the band. Kids were just coming constantly. And, um, you know, it, it was a really cool time to be doing shows and be in a band myself and, you know, have people come see us when we were actually atrocious. And um, there were kids that were just looking for a place and a home and something they could be a part of. And, uh you know, Buffalo hardcore and punk rock kind of like definitely had like the open door policy for that. So um, it was cool. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you just get burned here and there, but it was nothing that was discouraging enough to like stop or anything like that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the distro because all those all those years that I was booking shows, especially when I was booking bigger shows, like I think people had the, the impression that I was making all this money. And I was like, now that I post all these flyers all the time, I'm like, man, I lost this much money on this one, this much on that one. And I was just talking to my buddy Ben the other day and he was like, yeah, well, how much did you make per year back then? And I was like, I don't think I made money on the shows. Right. It was because I had a distro and I would just sell so many records and CDs at the shows, you yeah. know, because I had a record label too. 
I was like, that's how I was making my money, you know? But what turned me off to it mainly was, I think around like 2002, 2003, like all of a sudden, like every single band had a tour manager. And I was just like, I could just deal with your singer. Right. Why do I have to deal yeah. with these dickheads? You know what I mean? Like, you know, and part of it's my fault, right? Like, I mean, I'll, I'll be at a show and I'll hold up the fucking, you know, $300 and 20s that I have and make it look like, holy shit, I got all this money, you know, just for the fucking photo op. And it's just Mark <laughs> Miller posted a photo of me a couple of years ago on Facebook and tagged me. And I'm looking back, I'm like, man, I'm, a, I'm an idiot, you know, like. I probably lost 600 bucks, this show, <laughs> you know, but yet I'm fucking flaunting it. Like we're fucking killing it. And you know, it, it's some of those stupid things that I did that probably rub people the wrong way. Like, Oh, he's ripping off hardcore. He's this or that. But I was like, dude, you know, some of those shows were, you know, you're barely breaking even. Um, and by no means was it, you know, Chris ring or what other local promoters and cities across America that were changing the game. It was, you know, hardcore is getting popular. You know, hate breed was branching over into the metal market, you know, sick of it all had videos on MTV. Like, all of a sudden, those bands, like you just said, like didn't have tour managers, they didn't have agents. Now they do. So all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait, whoa, wait, you want me to guarantee you how much, no matter how well the show does, opposed to like, hey, do you want to come play Buffalo? We'll see how the show does, and we'll we'll settle up after, you know, like. So you know, the business aspect of it kind of got shoved down our throats, you know, as we were doing shows, and you know, some of the bands that we booked, obviously, were getting bigger and bigger, and you know, I'm appreciative that as they grew and got agents and managers, you know, they stuck up for us and said, Hey, listen, you know, this guy, Chris does our shows in Buffalo, you know? Um, and that's, that's literally how, you know, my career got built was, you know, I never really called agents. Like I said, I'm, I'm lying to booking agents and changing my parents' answer machine, like faking the funk, you know, it was really only until <laughs> some of those bands were, were getting bigger and started getting these people that were saying like, yo, this is our guy. He's booked us fucking six times, you know? And all of a sudden you got, agents calling me and you know not even email me really because this is still like you know really early in the email world of AOL dial-up so you know you're getting phone calls and you're negotiating things <laughs> over the phone and it was just you know that's when it kind of became a little more businessy and that's when you do have to kind of like you know suck it up a little bit and like all right well if I'm guaranteeing you x or y then like you know I, I gotta make myself some money too here you know and and that's kind of how you, you cut your teeth and, and figured it out and um you know but it's, it's funny like a lot of those dudes that were tour managers back then or in bands and or, you know, we're, we're small booking agents are legitimate, like, music industry fucking players today. It's, a uh, there's something about, like, the hardcore punk world, just that DIY, you know, the DIY mentality. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, you, you learn how to cut corners, you learn how to figure shit out, but it's kind of set up a lot of people, you know, that, that have been really, really successful in the music business uh, for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. A lot of them came from the hardcore punk communities in, in their cities, and uh, it's pretty cool to see you know, straight edge dudes fucking booking Janet Jackson. Like that's ridiculous, but it's, it's happened, you know? And uh, it's just something that, you know, yeah. you, you never thought you'd see, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Not just, not just like booking big concerts. Like it's cause originally I had, had you would tap to do like a small business interview for like the area. But then as I was telling you earlier today, that I realized like it'd be easier to give you a full episode because like you have so much stuff to cover. Um, but I've learned just from doing these small business interviews, like there's so many people just in Rochester and Buffalo that came from hardcore and punk that run their own businesses. Now it's just wild to, to see like how the DIY ethic like shaped their lives. It is. You know I mean, what I mean? Like whether it's something, you know, um, you're self-starter and you, you know, you started to learn music, you know, uh, an instrument, you know, and you started a band and, you know, you're leaving your hometown to go drive cross country and your bands are breaking down. You, you got to figure it out, to, you know, to doing shows, or, you know, whether you're an artist and doing records, I mean, a lot of it's self-starting, you know, and I think that goes a long way. Um, 
especially today, you know, if you're not a self-starter and you don't have the ambition to kind of get it done, you know, with no real reward at the end of the day, then, you know, you might not be as successful, but a lot of those hardcore punk kids, you know, were that way and it's definitely set them up for some successful stuff today. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any idea at all how many shows you've, you've booked or helped book over the years? I'm, I'm guessing it has to be in the thousands I mean, by now. Yeah, it's, I mean, we do, we're doing a little between 250, maybe around 300 shows a year now. Um, so, and I've been doing that consistently for the last couple of years. Um, so, I mean, since 1998, it definitely, you know, thousands, 5,000 shows, something, probably something ridiculous like that. That's, that's crazy. And that kind of leads into my next question. So with booking so many shows and working with like different clubs, I know you, you have your own club, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and dealing with like booking agents and then just like you probably have a staff like do you ever does that ever like make your head spin like having to deal with all that or, or are you pretty well organized by, with it all yeah, by I mean, this point? if i haven't figured it out by now i'd be fucked but um yeah i mean there's definitely there's definitely like i said you know trying times where you might want to throw in the towel just because of like you know how business this becomes um you know or like the lack of appreciation like you know there's literally shows i will literally flush seven thousand dollars down the toilet that i just lost you know for my friends to see the fucking get up kids you know and i'll get 50 texts that day like hey can you put me on the, the guest list it's like dude i'm losing five thousand dollars five thousand dollars you know and i and i got friends that don't want to spend yeah, the 20 crazy. bucks to come see their favorite band you know so there's definitely a lot of times where i had to wrestle with things like that um you know more i guess on a personal level you know who are your friends who aren't your friends you know who, who's using you for the free tickets versus who's actually your boy um you know, that was probably more the, the, the harder stuff to deal with growing up. Um, and, and honestly, the lack of appreciation, whether it's from the venue owners, to the security companies, to the, the local band kids, you know, like there's definitely a, a time and, and not even a time, but there's definitely a lot of people that just think, you know, you, you know, they deserve this or they're owed this. And, um, you know, I worked really hard doing what I was doing to get to whatever point I was at that time. So, you know, to have a local band or somebody demand money or, you know, a venue owner who I've done, you know, 16 shows and seven of them were sold out in the last fucking month to beat me up because a kid, you know, punched a hole in the wall and he wants actually $600 to fill it. It's like, well, dude, you know, your bar is making $15,000 today. I just, I just booked you how many shows, you know, on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Like, where's the appreciation? You know, um, it was kind of like the nickel and diming stuff that just really gets to you. And I've always been like a big picture thing. Like, Hey man, this is a two way street. Like we're all in this together. Whether it's, you know, your band and I'm the promoter, you're the venue and I'm booking your venue. Like let's all just, you know, do this together and we can all be successful. And, um, you know, it, it's fucked up to say, but I've been doing this for 22, 23 years now. And I've seen a lot of bands come and go. I've seen a lot of venues come and go, a lot of security companies come and go. And I think there's something to be said about the people that are just, they worry about the now they got to get there today. And they're not thinking big picture stuff. And, um, you know, I think that hurts people. And those are tough things, you know, having to deal with because our business is so personal. You know, it's all about relationships and it's, you know, it's something I love doing. So when people start becoming fucking pricks and, you know, they're not appreciative and it's not thank you. It's just like money hungry, hands out. Like that stuff is what kind of sours it. But, um, you know, other than that, you know, out of the, the thousands and thousands of show I book, you know, there's there's really no other things that have you know pissed me off really here you know i remember going to the waiting room a couple of times and, and now obviously that that's closing a rec room uh, uh yeah, so a little bit was, behind both um, those clubs i guess was more opened 
out of necessity than really like my dream to open up a fucking bar. Um, you know, there was a time, so we opened a waiting room in I think 2013. So I guess it was 2012. Um, Mohawk place closed. It's, it's obviously reopened. Uh, Extreme wheels closed. Club infinity closed. Sound lab closed. Um, and I want to even say maybe the water street closed around that time too, but basically like four or five venues that I was booking all closed. And, you know, I was just like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, you know, th- those venues added up for like 60 or 70% of, of like my business. And, you know, one common thread that I saw, and, you know, I don't want to sh- talk to any of those guys because a lot of those club owners are, are still friends of mine, but you know, there's something to be said about if you're just the venue and you can only make money at the bar, it's tough. Um, especially if you're just a live music club and that's all you're doing. And when I opened waiting room, I was like, okay, you know what? I own the club. So I get the bar and I book the show. So I get the door and you know, that mentality, you can't really lose, you know? So if I lose fucking a thousand bucks at the door, clearly the bar is making a thousand bucks, you know? So, you know, I opened waiting room, not with the idea to like, you know, get rich off of it. It was more or less like I can control both aspects. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to have a place to call home and we can do our shows for a real long time and um, fuck it. Let's do it. And, you know, I look back now and made some poor decisions. I mean, the, the deal that I signed with the landlords was just ridiculous. And, you know, I didn't really have commercial real estate to, you know, compare things to um, the only other venue I looked at, I opened at that time, you know, the rent was like, you know, almost double. And I thought I'd do a full build out and, you know, waiting room, the woman that owned it first, you know, she was having some tough times. So she was willing to kind of like reinvent herself and become a live music venue under the direction of us doing these shows. Um, so it was an easier answer, I guess, was to just kind of go in there and, and be just more of the booker and a partner. Um, and we did that in 2000, I want to say it was it had to be 2012 or 2013. And after a year of doing, you know, a lot of punk and hardcore shows, she was kind of like, yeah, this, this scene's not for me. Um, so we ended up buying her out and, and basically taking over the whole building because the downstairs, you know, while it was cool um, and it worked, that really wasn't my baby. I mean, it was something that was already pre-built with, with the bar and, you know, we basically added the stage, but had like the low ceilings and there's only like so much you could really do there. Um, but I still wanted that, you know, my true like 250, 300 cap, like small stage, stage dive, fucking punk rock hardcore club. And, um, you know, we agreed to take over the upstairs and built that out and, you know, poured my life savings into that joint. And, we built a pretty cool space. You know, we had a lot of really cool shows there. I look back and I was like, fucking, it was awesome. But man, it was super stressful, super expensive. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, I dumped so much money into the space. You know, I was kind of over it. It's like, I'm not putting any more money in this building. I don't own it. Um, and then we ran into like a, a HVAC issue. I'm not sure if, what shows you went to there, but um, the downstairs just gets like, got unbelievably hot like fucking 90 degrees hot like unbearable and um you know after having like each back guys come look at it we realized there was no fresh air intake in the building and for a public assembly space like a, a bar restaurant you have to have x amount of fresh air you know circulating into the into the building and we found out that we had like a couple of residential like air conditioning units hooked up to the building nothing commercial grade that could ha- handle the load of a venue at that time downstairs that had a legal capacity of fucking like 579. Um, 
but we weren't responsible for HVAC. It was in our lease. They're, the landlords are responsible for HVAC. So uh, we kind of like had this, I guess, what do you want to call it? Like a, a stance or a um, standoff where it's like, yo, I'm not putting any more money into your building. You guys got to fix the HVAC. And the cheapest quote that was out there was like 60, 70, 80 grand, something like that. And they were like, fuck you. We're not putting this much money into the building. Like, I think they banked on the fact that I invested so much money and time that I would just have to pull the trigger and, and do it. And I wasn't going to do it. And on top of all of that, that June, um, it was this, just right before the summer, we did a show with Westside Gun, um, sold out show. It was the same night as Kerfuffle, which was a radio station summer concert here in Buffalo. And I was down there for that. And I want to say it was either Gaslight played it or maybe Dashboard. And I get a phone call that Dennis, uh, one of the guys that works at After Dark, basically fainted. So I had to rush back to the show and he got rushed to the hospital and the doctor said he had a heat stroke. So, you know, there's something to be said, you know, when you, when you get a liquor license and you're, you're in a a public assembly space, you know, you're liable for the safety of the people that come to your establishment. So, you know, I called my attorney. I was like, listen, um, what do we do here? And, you know, he brought up the fact that, you know, a couple, a couple of years prior to that, when we first uh, took it over, we booked a show with Streetlight Manifesto, which is like a, this legendary show in Buffalo. Um, and we put a lot of people in that room, put a lot of people in. And when they started playing, the crowd started jumping in unison. Everybody pushed to the stage. And I was sitting down at the back bar and you could just feel this like this wave on the floor. It was like this. It was like a feeling like you've never felt at a venue. And you looked over and like the way the kids were pogoing, it wasn't like your no, normal pogo. You know, and it was just, it was off enough. I'm like, what the fuck? And I go in the basement just to check it out. And like 15 of the support beams had cracked in half. And the subfloor was acting as like a trampoline. And I was literally probably 10 minutes away from the floor collapsing. And I literally ran up, ran on stage in the middle of the song, made made the band stop, grabbed the singer. I was like, yo, you gotta be really cool about this. Cause you know, we got a fuck ton of people that have been here drinking all night to let them know like, Hey, we gotta get them out of the fucking building. And, um, Luckily, we got everybody out within five minutes. We said, hey, we got, we're having a weird structural problem. Uh, we'll let you right back in. And as we got everybody out of there, we looked at the floor, and it was just like this half moon shape, you know, of just the floor is ready to collapse. And, you know, my attorney reminded me about that. Obviously, we got it all fixed and double joist, and we're ready to open, you know, four days later, actually. It was, um, it was crazy. But, you know, my attorney's like, listen, you know, that was your get out of jail free card. You know, that was your fucking great white, you know, people fucking got killed sort of thing. Like you never want to put yourself in that position again. And I agreed. And I told my landlords, I'm like, I'm not going to do this. And the last HVAC company that came to waiting room basically told us that, you know, the city code is you have to have this. And the fact that I was knowingly operating not to code, we had email trails and texts with my landlords, you know, addressing the fact that the building is not to code, but we were still open that opens me up, you know, the personal liability and, you know, I'm not going to lose my home and go to prison because my landlords are being fucking pricks and don't want to buy an HVAC system, you know? So they called my bluff. I called their bluff. I said, fuck you. I'm not doing any more shows. I'm not going to pay you rent. until you fix it. They said, well, you don't pay rent. You got to fucking go. It goes to court. The judge is basically like, listen, you don't own the building, dude. If you're not paying the rent, you can't stay. Okay. That's fine. Um, but I still had, a, you know, I had four more years or three years left on my lease um, so they sued me for the remainder of the lease. So in theory, they won in the fact that they evicted me. But 
I won in effect. The judge said, hey, listen, you know, his personal guarantee was up, you know, a year ago. Uh, you guys need to fix your shit. There's no, you can't sue this kid for fucking three years of, of, of rent, right? So basically, we walked away. Waiting room is still empty to this day. Um, and even when all that was going down, I mean, I was, I'm telling you, I'm, I probably looked at two different buildings a week. You know, I was constantly looking to find like the next spot because, you know, I did learn so much opening a waiting room and, and building it out and, and saw the reaction. Just like, you know, I remember, I remember literally that, that day of having to like make the post, you know, about like fucking waiting room closing. And um, I went out that night and got fucking hammered, came home and read like, bro, there was seriously like fucking 500 <laughs> comments, you know? And to see kids like, and I call everybody kids. I don't mean like 16 year old. It's just my, my way I talk, but uh, just to see like, people's stories and like how much it meant. It's like, holy shit. Like for the only the couple of years that we were open, um, that was fucking awesome. So that was like the motivation, like, okay, I got to find something, got to find something. Um, and, you know, opening up a bar on Chippewa in Buffalo. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Chippewa. Um, it's kind of like, you know, your East Avenue. It's more or less like the entertainment district. Um, it was never an option for me. Uh, that was never really where I hung out growing up. I was more like an Allentown kid. But, uh, you know, a buddy of mine that, I, you know, I met over the years just being in the bar business. He did own like the top 40, you know, nightclub. Um, and he's like, yo, we got to do something together. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like your crowd's a lot different than my crowd. And he's like, yeah, you, you're the fucking 6 to 11 o'clock guy. I'm the 11 o'clock to 4 a.m. guy. And I didn't really have a late night business at, at waiting room. I mean, I, I, we do the live band karaoke, but it was definitely nothing like, you know, these crazy nightclubs. They see, you know, like Las Vegas or something, you know. Um, but his nightclub was like that. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. So it's like, you know, I'm like, if you think there's a way that we can kind of mesh, you know, rock and roll with fucking top 40, you know, nightclub stuff, I, I'm open to conversations. And, you know, now all of a sudden in 2020, 2019, you know, tattoos are cool. And fucking, you know, all the stuff that was the anti 10, 15 years ago is now like pop culture. So it's like, all right. So I guess maybe the the punk rock shows and straight edge and all this sort of stuff isn't as frowned upon as it was back in 1999 when we were doing shows at the Continental or the Atomic on Chippewa and like, you know, all the show kids were the weird kids on the street. Now all of a sudden, like, dude, I can't tell if you're a fucking hardcore kid anymore. You know, you used to be able, literally you used to be able to go to the mall and you see a kid with full sleeve tattoos <laughs> and he likes biohazard, fucking earth crisis or like dead Kennedys, you know? Now it's like, did you listen to the fucking Rihanna <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's more of a look. So, all of a sudden me introducing like shows to Chippewa, it wasn't that that crazy of an idea. And because it's considered the entertainment district, the town ballroom that you know I've been doing millions of shows at and they've been around forever. It's literally around it's two blocks away around the corner and Shays, like the theaters there. And you know, we really are kind of in the middle of like this hub of bars and restaurants and those live music venues. So um when you know my, my now partner and I met with the landlord of that building, uh you know, he, he's he's always reached out to me numerous times trying to get me into his buildings. I never said it made sense. And when we walked in, he was just kind of like, wow, like, not only am I doing this, but I'm doing this with, with this guy, Dale, who owned you know, this other bar called Encore. He's like, write your own deal. Like, you tell me what you want. If I can get both of you guys in here, like, I know there's gonna be longevity. It's gonna be successful. We're good to go. And Dale and I kind of came up with this concept where, you know, Sunday through Friday, I book shows early. Uh, 
we do the live band karaoke on Friday nights and Saturday nights, is just Saturday nights is our club night. It is what it is. Um, I don't book shows on Saturdays. It's not even worth fucking with it. The changeover, trying to get it in and, um, you know, trying to find the balance. And like, you look at our Instagram and you're going to be like, what the fuck is going on, dude? Cause dude, I shit you not. You're, we got bottle service Saturdays and sparklers and go, go dancers. And then I got sick of it all on Monday. And it is like this weird thing where, you know, the kids have bottle service on the stage one night and I got fucking Lawrence Arms fucking on the, the next night. It's just, it's unique. And, you know, some people might say we don't pull it off. Maybe the, the aesthetics is, isn't as cool or whatever. But, you know, I think we found a cool balance. And um, at the end of the day, dude, you know, if your favorite bands come to town, you're going to go. You know, we have a kick-ass sound system. The stage is, you know, the right height. We allow you to dance. We allow you to stage dive. Like, we're not. You know, we're not that stuck up kind of that club. Um, so we're, we're definitely in a unique position where, you know, we have the shows that complement the late nights. We have the late nights that complement the shows. And, you know, we're not just a, kind of like a one trick pony. And me op- after opening waiting room, you know, knowing that, like, I have another stream of income, you know, to help pay the bills was huge. And, um, you know, even the situation that we're in now with, with coronavirus and every venue being shut down and none of us being able to open till not only not even be able to phase four, you know, we book months in advance. So these venues that are closed, Mohawk place and ironworks town ballroom, even if we open in August for phase four, we're not opening until maybe December, you know, I mean, besides maybe a couple of local shows here or there, but also at a restricted capacity. So, you know, everybody, a lot of those venues are, are stuck kind of scratching their head. Like how the fuck are we going to survive? Where at least me with rec room, I still have my Saturday night, late night, you know, and yeah, it's still gonna be a reduced capacity, but um, it just helps knowing that we can't unlock our doors and literally do like our live band karaoke Fridays and the, the, the nightclub night on Saturdays and actually have income coming in right away to help sustain us, you know, in these, in these off months, because, you know, after dark and rec room and these promoters around town legitimately aren't going to have shows till 2021. And that is just such a fucked up thought, but um, it's true. And, I don't think a lot of people's favorite venues are going to, are going to last through it. So um, it's really unfortunate the way things are going down right now, but uh, it's kind of scary to see how the future is going to be too. But, um, you know, knock on wood, you know, like I said, we're going to be in good shape and we'll get through it. But, uh, you know, a lot of these other venues that we do shows at might not be as, as lucky. So um, yeah, it's kind of where we're at today. Yeah, and that that actually it's it's almost like you're reading my notes because that actually is the next thing I want to bring up was the pandemic. Um, now I, I obviously don't <laughs> exactly. That's probably it's probably something you're supposed to really kind of do as part of your job. Um, so no, I didn't. Um, like I said, I don't really book shows anymore. I really, maybe the occasional you know favor or whatever here and there. But uh, I play I play like fantasy sports like pretty seriously, like professionally or whatever. And that's when it kind of got serious for me. I remember is when uh, the, the basketball player first got it the first night. And I was just like, holy shit, like this is everything's going to get shut down. Like I, I work retail now. My job got like shut down like like less than a week later. Um, did, did you kind of fo- foresee this all happening? My wife and I actually were in Italy literally uh, right before this happened while they had it. So my wife and I basically booked this big European trip Uh actually going with my business partner, Dale and his wife, you know, on their honeymoon, we're like, let's do this big European trip. And, you know, we were trying to get pregnant. It was kind of this whole thing. Like, when are we going to have the ability to go away for two, three weeks again, anytime soon. So, you know, we just, you know, this European vacation with London and um, Portugal and Spain, and we ended it in Italy. So all of a sudden while we're over there, 
the, the whole coronavirus thing, this, this kind of started happening, right? Like, I don't, before we left, it's like, oh, should we buy some masks? Like, you know, I don't know. What do we do? You know, and it was, it was like, it's like a conversation, <laughs> but not like a, it wasn't what it was today, you know? And we did buy the masks and we were prepared to a degree. Um, and we went over there and it was great. And, you know, we went to London, all these places. And, you know, you see a couple of people at an airport with a mask on, but nothing crazy. It was really just like if you've traveled to, you know, China or, or Wuhan directly, like, you know, those flights are definitely scrutinized, but not the international travel that it is today. So, but while we were over there is when Northern Italy got hit. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we're in Europe. We're seeing the news over there, kind of like what you're seeing today, which is with the States news. And it was like, shit. And the whole time we're sitting here thinking like, fuck, we get, we're going to Italy. We're going to Italy at the end of our trip. You know, like, where's this thing going to be in a couple of weeks? And, you know, we tried to cancel it. We tried to, you know, use business or, uh, you know, interruption pandemic stuff as this was happening. And uh, the credit card companies, nobody would refund the money. And it was kind of like, well, it's once in a lifetime trip, you know, we've already prepaid the hotels and the airfare and all this sort of stuff. And it was, you know, we definitely rolled the dice um, and we still did it. But, you know, we were super uh, safe in the, in the fact that, you know, when we did our all of our tourist stuff, you know, we did wear masks out and. We're, you know, the sad part, I guess, is we missed a lot of stuff because we were literally in our hotel room every night by like five or six o'clock doing like the early bird dinners at like four thirty, five o'clock. Uh, all the tourist shit super early in the morning and basically just bunkered down in the hotels, literally just being like, OK, we got to, you know, we just got to get out of Italy. We don't want to get stuck there. So when we came back to the States, um, you know, that was like March 1st, actually. So um, when we came back, it was like it was being talked about, but it wasn't as crazy yet, you know, and I'm the one telling people like, yo, the shit's no joke. And they're talking about how they're quarantining the people that, that traveled from Wuhan and some other places. And I was like, man, we were just in Italy. So I basically self quarantined when we got back uh, for 14 days. Um, my wife went to work for a couple days. Actually, she went to work for three days. And then, you know, it basically hit the U S to the point where, they said anybody that's traveled international, you know, or to Europe or to Italy, you know, need to call the Department of Health and you need to be quarantined. So we were like, yo, that's us. Um, so my wife called and she got out of work and she finished the quarantine here, the self-quarantine at home. And neither of us had it. We got tested and, you know, knock on wood, we, we passed. And, um, you know, it was like, all right, cool, we're good. But by that time, March 14th or so, everybody was shutting down. So... I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. I mean, I've legit been quarantined since March 1st, right? So I've been about three weeks before everybody else, or a lot of people didn't get it until early April. But, um, you know, I definitely saw the severity of it. And from the, the numbers in Northern Italy, how staggering it was and how fast it was multiplying, it was like, holy shit, like, you know, they're not going to allow me to do concerts, you know, like these mass gatherings and all these sort of things. And, you know, I came back and started having those conversations with agents and, and people and, like anybody, everybody's like, yo, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, you know? And, and it made sense. It's like, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll figure it out and not worry about the what if scenario. But, you know, when it did hit, it was, it was, it was obviously really real. And, um, you know, the question was like, and honestly, I still have the question today. It's like, okay, we have, we had 36 cases in Erie County when we shut everything down. Qu quarantine, we're shutting down for a month. Let's figure it out. Now we have thousands of cases. And we're opening up. So the 36 shutdown to the thousands let's open, those numbers don't really correlate with me. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a 
whether you know people believe in this thing or not. I definitely think we're going to see another spike. To me, I think we're definitely a little greedy in the fact that we're opening. Um, but yeah, I mean, bands, no band wants to be the band that, that announces the first tour or plays the show and, and their fans think they're putting them at risk for a health, you know, a health risk. So, you know, a lot of the bands are taking it super seriously. I mean, we canceled probably 60 shows. Um, I mean, literally, we, had, we haven't had a show since March like 19th. And that's nuts. I mean, to not have a show from April through fucking the end of the year is just... That's it's been a part of me for 21 years. You know, it's just I'm I'm stir crazy. I don't even know what the fuck to do right now. Uh, it's literally insane. But um, you know, everybody keeps talking about you know the new normal and how are we going to open? And I mean, I guess you know you just got to open. Um, obviously, we're going to do everything we can, whether it's masks or you know wipe things down. But you, you know, hardcore shows, punk shows, concerts in general, it's about the energy. It's about getting sweaty in the mosh pit and fucking getting up against the stage and. You know, it's the energy of shows that makes people go to them. You know, you know, there's a reason why live streaming isn't the number one thing happening in the world because you watching a concert on TV is not even close to the same thing that happens live. So, you know, people talk about how maybe live stream is the future. I don't. Um, you know, I definitely think it's just being patient and getting people back out there again. But, um, you know, in the interim, it's definitely like some scary times right now. Uh, and I'm curious to see, you know, who who makes it out of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I knew it was going to be serious. I don't think it was going to be this serious. I didn't necessarily anticipate a full fall closure. I definitely thought the summer would be shot. Um, but maybe by, like, October we'd be, you know, back to business and doing the big tid the season in December, like, you know, and not skip a beat. But that's not looking likely um, anymore. So, you know, it's just kind of dealing with that and focusing on 2021 and just getting inner office things better, you know, whether it's marketing plans or better records you know for banking purposes just you know because we are going to have a monster 2021 every band that canceled their tour or hasn't toured or is going to need the tour for money everybody's gonna be out there in 2021 so you know i thought we've had busy years before with 250 shows i bet you we're doing 350 shows in 2021 which is also a little scary because people are coming off unemployment or still on unemployment you know a lot of places are closing um, that 600 bucks extra money that everybody's making right now is going to run out. So people are literally going to be living on strictly unemployment and you're going to have a million, not just competing, you know, with other promoters and other venues, but competing with myself. I might have six fucking metal shows in seven days. I might have six metal shows in four days and have them in various venues in the same city, you know, like, so there's something to be said about, you know, does it even make sense for all these bands to hit the road come 2021? But I just think we're also eager to just get back out there and do some stuff that um, we don't care. It's just like, hey, let's book fucking as many shows as we can and give people the opportunity to get out of their house and get back to like the normality that they were used to. And, you know, maybe the deal structures change a little bit. So not everybody's getting killed. Not everybody's making as much money as they were before, but we're out there doing it, you know? And I think that's going to be um, the new normal, I guess, from a touring standpoint come 2021. What are you doing? Like some kind of like shirts and hats that so, you're selling to um, kind of support your staff right yeah, now, too? I mean, it's obviously as basic as can be. Uh, you know, we put up this shirt, it literally just says shows, you know, super simple black t shirt, white print shows, and the dad hat that says shows. Just, you know, we miss it. You know, I guess we'll, we'll call it our, our, our COVID, you know, memorabilia. But, um, you know, there's, there's guys that work in our, work in our business that, you know, the stage hands and the sound guys and a lot of these guys that don't, get the unemployment you know um you know it sucks for some of these guys but 
whether they tour with other bands and they come home and they just pick up some work here or there, you know, they're not lucky enough to be getting the 600 bucks um, or even any unemployment. So, you know, the fact that this thing is dragged out for as long as it has. And like I said, you know, with us being phase four and the venues not really having anything, you know, we've been selling these shirts. It's been like, Hey, buy the shirt money goes, to the, goes to the team members that, you know, are the ones that are kind of fucked right now. So um, it's been cool. You know, we, we sold like a hundred shirts, nothing crazy, no, you know, but it definitely helps these guys pay their rent and their car payment another month. So um, it's been huge. And I think we're going to launch, you know, maybe like another shirt, a, a different series or something, you know, just try to generate some more revenue as well. Um, I think we're going to do like a, a, I don't want to say the word COVID canceled tour shirt, but, Something similar. Our, our buddy, uh, promoter in Philadelphia, posted something for one of his venues. Just listed all the shows, you know, as as a tour of a canceled. I thought that was a cool concept and something to obviously remember the chaotic times that we're all living, but also you know raise some money for the guys that you know don't have any. So um, that might be a fun little unique memorabilia thing to kind of take out of this. You know, I don't want to downplay it. Obviously, because I do know a lot of people have gotten sick and have dealt with some horrible things with it. But um, you know, I guess it's a a way to kind of let me lighten the situation a little bit and, and raise the money. Yeah, that definitely is a cool concept. So if, if I'm hearing correctly, are you, are you planning on booking some shows in the fall this year? Or are you, are you more um, looking I mean, into I mean, next I mean, year I mean, at this point? Then? A handful of shows for the fall. Uh, I mean, I'm 99% positive. They're not going to happen. Uh, if they do, you know, the, again, the capacities are going to be restricted to 50% or something like that. So I don't even know how we would do that. Um, you know, we're taking the mentality of really just focus on 2021. Uh, it's just everything's so unknown right now. You know, do we get hit with another spike? What is the capacity is going to be looking like, you know, come the fall? Um, you know, so it's kind of, I don't want to say why, why waste our time and energy on it, but that's kind of where we're at. I mean, you know, we got pitched the drive-in movie concept, you know, things like that. And it's just the time and effort that goes into putting some of this stuff together you know, for 60 cars that might be able to put four people in a car and now you have people drinking and driving. And there's just, you know, I'm at a time in my life where now you have to kind of weigh out the risk versus the reward. And um, some of it's just not worth it. You know, like I still love live music, you know, as much as today as I did before, but, you know, just trying to pull some shit together to like make a couple bucks here or there. Um, doesn't really make sense for us right now. So, you know, we're, I think we're taking off more of a, more of a hands-off approach for the remainder of 20, 20 um and really just focus on 2021 and how we're going to handle like the onslaught of just the amount of shows that we're going to have um you know rochester's the same as buffalo and syracuse where you know western new york markets where the club division shows are we're seasonal it's fall and spring you know nobody's driving up to our market in january or early february because of the snow and nobody's playing inside clubs in the summer because we only get so many good months of weather that they're all doing outdoor shows right so you know, a lot of the shows that we had to cancel this this past year are going to get rescheduled for next year and add that on top of the other 60, 70 new tours that are going to be out there, if not more. Um, that's a lot of shows in February, March, April, May, you know, so it's just going to be, it's going to be nuts. So we just got to make sure that we're ready for that and, you know, how we'd market that many shows and put that many shows on sale and fucking keep track of the receipts and all this, all the, of the stuff that we got to do behind the scenes, you know, from, from the business standpoint and get better on those things. Because I think, yeah, like I said, 2021, I think it's just going to be a monster year for, for music in general. Um, you know, I think there's gonna be a lot of cool music coming out of the, the, the quarantine. You know, a lot of people are stuck home and doing a lot of cool things and writing new music and stuff. And 
they're going to want to get out there in 2021 and tell their story and, and, and tour on it. So, um, you know, as much as it sucks right now, you know, take up a hobby. I bought an electronic drum set. Fucking got that up in the attic right now. You know, reliving my, my youth with that right now. And um, bought that. I think it's called Babel. Fucking going to learn Spanish maybe or something. Like, you know, do something, pr- you know, productive with our time. And like you said, you're hanging with your son. And, you know, I got a kid on the way in October. So it's just, you know getting ready for that and take advantage of this time because dude we're never gonna have a time again where we're stuck home where you can't go to work and you can't do this like so you know i'm more of a half full guy make the best of it and then um you know see what happens come the next the next year but that's kind of where we're at i go back on friday i'm just like like i told you i'm just like i'm like where did all the time go you know like i've been here for almost like three months now just chilling my son every day and and i was like getting all choked up my girlfriend the other day like i'm gonna really really miss this bonding time i mean she's taking two weeks off from work not right. to go back so she'll be able to spend time with him obviously but it's just you know you don't get these opportunities to to watch the kid grow and luckily he's young enough to where he doesn't really know what's going on yet but it's definitely something to tell him about when he gets older what what, yeah, what it's uh, weird to think, of, like, you know, we don't know but it's like you know like your kid and, no. and my kid will not know the world pre-covid and you know you don't i still don't think it's gonna be that much different but maybe masks on people is the new normal you know people wearing gloves and the six feet social distancing thing is, is becomes a thing because you know a pandemic could always can happen again you know like so maybe this is like a precaution that like society takes moving forward which is just outrageous to me you know and like i said maybe maybe the live music business go, goes away and it becomes streaming and things like that and you know your kids gonna be looking at videos of you when you were 18 years old at a fucking hardcore show singing and diving at a show and She's like, Dad, why the fuck would you do that? You know, like, look at all the germs that could be in that room, you know? And it's like, yeah, it was never, it was never even a thought in our mind back then. So, you know, is this the whole, I walked uphill to and from school, you know, in the snow every day that you, know, you hear from your parents from the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like, you know, the guy that would deliver the milk to the fucking front door for a nickel. Like, you know, are these our stories? Are these our fucking milk for a nickel stories that we're going to be telling our kids that we'll have no idea? you know, the shit that we did. So I have no fucking idea. It's, it's just, it's a wild thing to think about. And, and, and with the whole contagious thing, like I actually, when you had waiting room open, I came to that judge show and I saw Tara and knock loose here a couple of years ago. And, and I've told this story a few times on this podcast now, but literally both of those shows within, within a day or two, right. I, I got sick from being at those shows. You know what I mean? Just cause there were so many germs there. And, and that judge show, the whole place was just covered in sweat. You know what I mean? Like, and, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like going to shows moving forward, but that, that makes me kind of nervous. Like, I think you will probably see some people in masks, you know, and it's, it's yeah, going to it be really interesting is. to see and, what, uh, what happens moving forward. Yeah, that show was fucking nuts. Like, that was definitely a bucket list band that, uh, you know, I was able to book. It was just, you know, the, give me one of those or two of those a year, it definitely makes it all worthwhile, you know? And again, it's like you're reading my mind, because that's actually literally the next question I have to ask you. Are, are there any bands that you haven't booked yet that you'd like to book in the future? Yeah. You know, my bucket list growing up was always Green Day, Guns N' Roses, and The Descendants. And uh, I've always said, you know, once I book all three, I'm done. I'm going to quit the business. You know, once you kind of hit your goal, then, you know, what else are you doing it for? So I guess a part of me has been lucky enough where, you know, I did just book The Descendants last summer. Um, You know, and I I don't really fan out too bad, but I made the band take a photo with me. And I was just like, this is fucking awesome. And the show was fucking, dude, it was just fucking awesome. Um, (laughs) Did book Guns N' Roses a couple summers ago. Definitely the biggest loss of my career. Almost put me out of business. Uh, Funny story, was the same agent that sold me that is the one who sold me Vanilla Ice in 1999. So that was like this weird, you know coming to jesus moment i guess i'm like holy shit this came full circle um this guy got me the business now he almost put me out of business but um yeah 
and I've been very close uh, booking Green Day a couple <laughs> times, not on like the arena level, but on like that small club secret show kind of shit. And, um, you know, like I said, that was a band, you know, Kerplunk was one of the first records I listened to. And that's been a band I've followed, you know, my whole career and one of my favorite bands. And I've had an insane amount of run-ins and stories with those guys. I think that would be a pretty cool story. Like, hey, remember that fucking shitbag kid that one night in Rochester? Like, now I'm your promoter. Like, that would just be kind of a cool story to tell the Green Day guys. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, I did, I booked uh, uh, Lifetime, which is, you know, another one of my favorite bands. And, uh, you know, it was unfortunate, but uh, we were we were one of the guys that were booking Hellfest in 2005. And, you know, we're the ones convincing, you know, Lifetime to reunite to help save CBGBs. And, you know, uh, we were very instrumental in that. And obviously that fell apart, but we were able to save the show. And I was able to book them at the Stone Pony uh, with the Bouncing Souls and the Loved Ones, which is like my dream bill. And uh, it was fucking amazing. So, I mean, there's definitely like a handful of my bucket list bands that I was able to book, you know, throughout my career that maybe broke up before I really started doing shows. Um but, you know, Green Day is definitely probably my the next bucket list band. Um, a band All, which is members of the Descendants, um, is another band I love. But with Chad Price singing, he's like my favorite All singer. So I mean, I'd love to book that incarnation of those guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a couple bucket list bands left. Shelter, I've never booked. That's a band I fucking love growing up. Um, would love to do the Shelter shows, and I've been close with that a couple times. So, you know, I'm on the cusp, but. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, there's definitely a handful of guys that I'm still trying to to book just because, you know, I'm a, I'm a fanboy. So, Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, I could hear you tell stories all night, honestly, man. But uh, I'm actually out of questions. So uh, do you have any additional, um, do you have any additional oh, comments God. to add or anything like that? Um, no, man, that's basically it. You know, I appreciate it. I think it's cool what you're doing. I did, I did listen to Jeffers and uh, Rob's fucking one of his uh, podcasts already. So I think that's cool. Uh, Especially shining some light on the Buffalo Rochester hardcore scene stuff. So, um, yeah, it's cool, man. Appreciate it. That wraps up episode nine. Episode 10 will feature part two of my conversation with Mike Jeffers. Other future episodes will feature interviews with Ruben Lipkind, Brendan Pore, Kevin Mahoney, and volume two of the Small Business series. Thanks to Chris Ring for doing this interview with me. Special thanks to Rob Antonucci for all of your help with this podcast. As always, thanks to my family for all the support. See everyone real soon, and stay safe.